Hi, I'm Eric Gurna, Executive Director of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. So welcome again to Please Speak Freely. I'm your host, Eric Gurna, and I'm here in New York City with Kristen Wortman, who is a journalist focusing on the intersections of food, health, politics, and culture. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks for having me. So I, uh, I want to thank you for, for doing this rather last minute, because um, I um, became aware of your work just last Sunday when I read an op-ed that you wrote in the New York Times uh, called Pay People to Cook at Home. And it definitely caught my eye. Um, and, um, you know, so I want to definitely get into what the, the messages that you were conveying in that op-ed. But mm-hmm. before we do that, maybe you could just talk a little bit about, you know, who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, so like you said, I'm a journalist. Uh, I also have a background in nutrition. So I'm a nutrition educator and I work with people in private practice and also with doctors across New York City. Mm-hmm. But my work as a journalist really focuses on food, health, nutrition, and um, but looking at it more broadly too in terms of how food has really changed our culture. Uh, I'm really looking specifically at how the industrial food system has changed our culture mm-hmm. and not for the positive in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, and just looking at all the various social issues that come along with that. Food is a big topic in, yes. in media right now. I feel like so many articles and magazines and you know uh, programs on, on the radio and TV are about either about food in a like sort of, t- uh, what would you call it, tantalizing way, right. like food channel stuff, mm-hmm. or sort of critical analyses of food, the the system that brings us our food. Yeah. Um, so you did. You mentioned that you're sort of um, uh, critical of the industrial sort of food. Yeah. Um, um, what would you call it? The industrial food system. The industrial food system. Also but, sometimes called big food. Big food. Or big ag. And what do you have a particular sort of stance or take on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, we've really relinquished a lot of our control of our food system to these big corporations. Mm -hmm. So we're at a point now where 80% of the food globally is controlled by five multinational corporations. And what 80% of the food is controlled by five corporations, multinational corporations. We're talking about like seed and grain reserves, all these things, Uh commodity crops. Okay. So, um, in a, you know, in another way you can look at it is if you look at the shelves in the grocery store, you, you have this great illusion of choice. But the truth is, you know, 75% of products on the shelves are controlled by just a handful of corporations. Mm-hmm. So um, and what that means is food's being produced on a mass scale and it's being the nutritional quality is really deteriorated. So when, when I mentioned commodity crops, those are things like wheat, corn, soy, and these are in nearly every single packaged and processed food, mm-hmm. and sugar. So most Americans are eating and relying on these foods as the basis of their diet. And now we're seeing a, a really enormous surge in diet-related disease as a result. Diet-related diseases like diabetes and... Heart disease, mm-hmm. um, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, metabolic syndrome, which is the precursor to diabetes. Um, you know, one in three Americans are now obese or overweight, which mm-hmm. in many cases leads to poor health outcomes. And, you know, it's been widely touted, I think, that um, eating at home more right. is one of the key answers right to this right right and you know most famously michael pollan his latest book called cooked and he talks about how 
the key to good health in his opinion is cooking at home because you're you don't have a corporation preparing that food for you you're actually doing it in the home yourself Mm -hmm. Um, i absolutely agree with this idea the problem is for many americans it's very difficult for them to cook at home for a number of reasons Um, what i'm really getting at in this article is the fact that people don't have time and there's really this enormous time crunch because americans are working more than they ever have before in fact americans work more than any other industrial uh, industrialized nation including japan mm-hmm. um, not only that but healthier foods do cost more because we have subsidies for foods that are very low quality all the ones i previously mentioned um, people can get convenient foods very cheaply and it makes it so you don't really want to take the time to shop for or, or you're not able to take the time to shop for the more expensive foods, which are typically healthier. Mm-hmm. And if I remember right from Michael Pollan, he's the one that said I can eat as, ma- as many French fries as I want <laughs> as long as I cook them myself. Cook him. Right. right. I liked that. Yeah. I mean, the idea makes total sense. Um, but to me, the problem is that um, how are we going to get people back in the kitchen? Mm-hmm. And I don't think he really addresses that. And I don't think many other food writers really have yet. Mm-hmm. So um, the art, the op-ed that you wrote in the New York Times, uh, published on May tenth, two thousand thirteen, it's called "Pay People to Cook at Home." So what's your what's your working thesis here? Well, the thesis is really based on uh, Selma James, and she created this campaign called Wages for Housework in the seventies, and her idea was. When we constantly um, talk about feminism as getting women out of the home and into the workforce, we devalue the work that's actually done in the home. Now, this doesn't just have to be women's work. It can be the man's work, too, and children can contribute, too, when they're old enough. Mm-hmm. But when I was, you know, when I, as I research and work on the, these issues around food, I was constantly coming up against, you know, there's like this rub where people can't seem to get how are we going to get people back in the kitchen? Um, and to me, this seemed like a really good solution because if we can actually incentivize, incentivize the work at home, um, pay people to do the work of cooking, you know, do the work of all the work involved in cooking. It's not just standing over the stove cooking. It's shopping. It's prepping. It's mm-hmm. meal planning. I mean, this takes hours and hours every week as someone who does it. You know, I do it myself. I know it takes a tremendous amount of time. So I thought this was... You know, and this idea has been around for a long time. Um, and I was really shocked when I went through all my books on food and all the scholars who've written about food. No one really mentions Selma James mm-hmm. and Wages for Housework. And it seemed to me that we could combine, you know, this growing food movement to get people cooking healthier foods at home with this idea of wages for housework. And we might actually have something that can be done by everyone, mm-hmm. not just people who have the privilege of, of cooking at home. Mm-hmm. And your reference to Selma James was one of the things that really um, sparked my interest in in this op-ed because I'm a little bit familiar with her work pretty recently. Um, And it it was so interesting to me that something so radical, Selma James was a real radical. Oh, yeah. But it was embedded, and still is. That's right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say. (laughs) Let me start that over. Selma James is a real radical. But, you know, the ideas that Selma James brought forth with Wages for Housework was embedded in this. Um, more sort of benign sounding idea of mm-hmm. we should cook at home more. Mm-hmm. Did you think about how radical this notion of paying people to cook at home of wages for housework is? And, you know, if there was, how did you come at it? Were you primarily looking for strategies to help incentivize people to cook at home and make them able to do that? Mm-hmm. Or were you sort of looking for a way to wrap um, this very radical idea and something that was palatable to the public in order to get it out there? more. No, I 
Um, I agree with Selma James's philosophy. Um, I, it is a radical idea, and I think that's why it was largely ignored for the most part. And mm-hmm. I think um, feminists in the you know in the sixties and seventies were trying to get women out of the house. So the idea of paying p- women to stay home was really counter to what they were fighting for. Yeah. But no, when thinking about it in terms of cooking and cooking at home. Um, to me, it was just sort of like, it was like an aha moment where I thought, oh, wow, this is something we can really do. Because I, I don't think, while it is a radical call, I don't think it has to be, I think it's, I think it's something that can be worked into sort of our culture right now. Because I, there are other programs, there are other government programs that do things like this. So why can't we make it so that women and men can actually afford to cook healthy meals at home? And, and you know, we have a, a real crisis at this mm-hmm. point in terms of our nation's health. Um, and, you know, our health is linked to so many other issues like performance in school and incarceration rates and all of these things. So if we want to really, you know, focus on the importance of family and the importance of like nurturing and cooking and caring, then I think we have to think about creating a policy that makes it possible, you know, because I think, you know, I've gotten a lot of criticism from conservatives. I would um, imagine. <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> But what I find interesting is conservatives are always paying lip service to motherhood and mm-hmm. to family values. And this, to me, is a real call to uh, sort of more traditional values, not necessarily just motherhood, but motherhood and fatherhood or whoever you're partnered with in a family situation mm-hmm. and that you want to take the time to raise healthy children. So to me, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be so conservative versus liberal in terms of what we're talking about here. It should just be American values. So I, w- I want to come back to that, to what the response has been. But mm-hmm. I, I also want to ask you, you mentioned that there are other examples of um, paying people to incentivize positive behavior in this way. Or what were those examples? Well, I'm not, I, well, what I'm thinking of are, I, I think when, when, uh, when conservatives say to me, you're such a socialist, this is a very, I, I always think of the public school system. You know, we have a public school system that guarantees that children go to school, free education, and that's a social system, essentially. Um, but within the school system, there's also the free lunch programs. Mm-hmm. And those are for, you know, students who don't ha- don't have the income where their parents can afford to feed them. They have breakfast and lunch. Right. And that feeds, like, um, millions of children mm-hmm. every day. Uh, I have issue with the quality of those foods that mm-hmm. are being served in the school system. And we did another but, program about that some oh, time ago. Okay. Yeah. But the fact remains that, that we do have programs that are that acknowledge the importance of feeding children. Um, we should be feeding them healthier foods. But Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I think that those are examples. I know that in, um, you know, the new deal, actually, there was a part of the new deal that was a program for single mothers and it was a stipend or some kind of payment so that women could stay home Mm -hmm. when they were single mothers and, and, um, you know, feed their children, care for their children. But of course that was, painted as a way to, um, you know, it's this whole idea about handouts and, and making people so they don't want to go to work and stay home. So that's the sort of conservative critique, uh, libertarian critique that I think is not really valid because we have to ask ourselves what kind of a, a society we want to live in. Do we want to live in a society where we want to support our fellow humans or not? And I think right now we're not supporting people properly and Mm -hmm. it's, clearly evidenced by what's going on in our society. And um, so I think a program like this uh, that would be 
available to everyone across the board and and there wouldn't be a stigma and in, in just giving it to low-income people it would mm-hmm. be for everyone mm-hmm. um would be really a new a new way to look at this whole question you you mentioned a phrase a couple of times that um i imagine might get some pushback which is getting people back into the kitchen yeah um, you didn't say get women back into the kitchen. No. You said get people back into the yeah, kitchen. Yeah. But there, as you mentioned, there there is a traditional um, feminist push to get to I think give women more opportunity to to do work other than at home. Sure. Right. Right. Um, have you have you got has that come up? I mean, has there been a sort of feminist pushback to this? Yeah. Notion? I mean, I think there certainly was the Selma James. Oh, absolutely. And I'm. Um, I'm not suggesting that everyone wants to be a cook and cook for their kids or even have kids. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I acknowledge that not everyone would want to be part of a program like this, and that's totally fine. And, um, you know, many women don't want to work in the kitchen at all, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but I do think that the work is being done. And this is Selma James's point, is that this work is already being done, and it has never been paid for or has never been compensated in any way. And it's a tremendous amount of work, as any person who's doing it will tell you. So I think that's where, you know, we have this hierarchy in this society where we pay more for things we value more. Um, you can see it in, you know, we pay doctors a lot of money. We pay right. lawyers a lot of money. Um, we pay teachers very little money. So, yeah. I mean, it shows you what we value. But we pay women or men who work at home nothing. So that's a real, that really shows you what we're valuing there. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in your article that there are examples of this type of policy in other countries. Could you talk a little bit about what you learned when you looked into um, the kind of supports that um, parents or, or people in general are offered to be able to value work that takes place in the home? Yeah. More? Well, there are several in several Northern European countries. They have It's policies. always the Northern European <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> Um, so in the article, I say the Netherlands, they have a 1.5 jobs model where parents can decide to work 75% of their normal work week when they have young children. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Sweden, parents can work three quarters of their normal hours until children turn eight. So, you know, what I'm asking for is even more radical than that. But I think that this is those kinds of policies are um, obviously they're they're working well in those countries, and so we could do something like that here also. Mm-hmm. So there's one particular paragraph mm-hmm. in your, in your article that I, I want to ask you if you actually wouldn't mind reading. It's a short one. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts. It's nearly impossible for a single parent. Um, about midway through the article. Okay. Um, I wonder if you might read that, and we can we can chat about it a little bit because this one really struck a chord for me because mm-hmm. it it points to. Uh, the class yes. issue. And race. It's nearly impossible for a single parent or even two parents working full-time to cook every meal from scratch, planning it beforehand and cleaning it up afterward. This is why many working parents of means employ housekeepers. But if we put this work on women of lower socioeconomic status, as is almost always the case, what about their children? Who cooks and cleans up for them? It's something I think about a lot mm-hmm. um, when people are saying, well, I had to get a nanny or I had to get a housekeeper because I'm working so much. Mm-hmm. And so many times those nannies or housekeepers, um, the majority of time are women. And yeah. so many times they, they, have, do, they do have children of their own. Yeah. This really gets to the crux of the issue, which is that um, we need to value the work that all women are doing that are taking care of children across the board. And what happens is, you know, 
uh, people in wealthier neighborhoods um, employ women that uh, have are of lower socioeconomic status, and their children sort of get short shrifted as a mm-hmm. result. So, um, you know, there's a lot. There is a lot that's been written about that, and and it has a lot of implications for uh, race and class along these lines that we really need to to further explore. I don't know the answer yet to Mm -hmm. that question, really. And you you mentioned that the policy you're advocating would allow for anybody to receive some sort of stipend or, yeah. or, or benefit or incentive, financial incentive to be able to right. um, take the time to um, prepare home-cooked meals at right. home. Um, why advocate for that instead of, um, you know, another program that's based on um, income level? Like if you're, mm-hmm. you know, below a certain income level, mm-hmm. you get this extra stipend to support the, your, your mm-hmm. ability to do that. You mentioned about the stigma, yeah. but well, are there other aspects that, that lead you to that sort of approach? I think, well, I think that we need to acknowledge that this work is important for anyone who does it, no matter what your class background, race background, or socioeconomic status. So that means that women or men who um, maybe make a lot of money but would rather be home to take care of their children and cook and, you know, care for their children, then they should be able to be part of this program, too. Um, on the other side of it, I do think it's important to not have a stigma attached to a program like this. We already see what the stigma is with things like food stamps, and you know people are uncomfortable talking about them, using them, um, and that's unfortunate. And I think that if we had a program that was um, anyone could qualify for, I think that would really change things. And, and also it would silence a lot of the critics who talk about the welfare state and people receiving handout, because I don't... I wouldn't want this to be that same kind of a, a program. Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting, too, because it's not just about money, right? Because right. a lot of people with jobs that, that pay a lot, mm-hmm. uh, those jobs are also very demanding. Yeah. And so it's not so much that they don't have the money to yeah. buy the food or even to pay someone to prepare right. home-cooked meals, which is sort of another dimension to this, which is right. a little confusing to me. Um, but they, the, the our culture is such that the expectation is that people are working 50, 60, 70 yeah. hour weeks. Right. Yeah, the time issue is really uh, a huge issue. And in my, when I work with people, you know, in my practice, um, even, you know, uh, people of very high income uh, don't have the time to cook foods at home and then and rely on uh, fast foods or convenience foods, even though, you know, and this is something that, you know, the food movement has really been, uh, driving on issues of access and education and saying if we educate people about better quality foods, if we provide access, then they will use those foods. Well, I don't think that's really true because it's a, a much deeper problem than that because if you look at people who um, have the means but still continue to eat these poor quality foods, you can see that access and education aren't, you know, that's not the the real, those aren't the real issues. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking about um structural inequalities here and um, also the pervasiveness of a food industry that is pumping out these foods um, that makes it convenient for anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, the time crunch, and that's really why I think we need to think about creating a program that would provide not only the money but the time for people to do this work. But what kind of program can, can provide time? Well, th- this program would make it so you didn't have to go to work if you mm-hmm. wanted to or you worked less. So that's time. I'm just wondering if that 
what the effect of that would be. I, I just having a conversation the other day with someone who was um, who was saying that uh, they they work at a a big corporation, mm-hmm. a media corporation, and he was saying that uh, his boss was very upset because his coworker had taken two weeks vacation at at, at once, taken two weeks off, and his boss was saying he's, she's gone for two weeks, like two whole weeks. Who who does that? Mm-hmm. You know, and and my friend was sort of defending his colleague, saying. Well, we get whatever it is. We get three weeks vacation, four weeks vacation, whatever it is. She took two weeks of it. Like right. she just, you know, that was, she had the vacation time, so she took the days. Right. But the expectation from the, the management was, right. no, you're supposed to take your vacation days for long weekends here and there. You're mm-hmm. supposed to keep your, you know, iPhone or BlackBerry or whatever it is on. You're supposed to be accessible if mm-hmm. you're in this very important position, right. you know, whatever very important position that may be. And so, you know, there may be, while there may be a policy that exists, you know, the, if the cultural expectations are such that you know taking advantage of the policy is seen as 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 weak or unsuccessful, I don't know how far it gets us. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a valid point. But ideally, you know, government policies always influence the culture. So if people felt like, you know, if people in enough numbers felt like they could take advantage of something like that, that would really shift the culture to start valuing that work rather than just the constant nonstop work that mm-hmm. many of us are now you know, involved in. Right. Right. So th- that's a, that's a good place to transition back to what the um, response to this has been. Cause mm-hmm. as you said, the government influences the culture. Mm-hmm. I, I heard the, you know, Fox news up, up, up the way, you know, screaming bloody murder um, because it's not government's role to do any such thing, according to so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said that there's been some conservative pushback to, yeah. to this article. And I'm, and I'm sure there's been other articles as well, but um you mentioned a little bit about what the gist of the mm-hmm. their response is, mm-hmm. but uh, so how do you? I mean, how do you feel about it? How have you been dealing with it? What has there been anything surprising that has come out of the critical response to this piece? Well, I'm always somewhat surprised by things that you know the things people say, just yeah. in terms of you know being not being respectful. I sure. Guess. Well, on the internet, <laughs> I mean, the sheer nastiness <laughs> yeah. of some of the comments. Was, right. Yeah. Um, but no, as far as the real critiques, I really anticipated most of them, you know, mm-hmm. the, the call of being a socialist. Um, but like, to which I say, as you mentioned earlier, if you want to call me a socialist, because I actually care about, you know, the community and the society at large, and um, that's fine. Yeah. You know, um, I don't have a problem with that. And um, beyond that, it's just been, you know, this concept of nanny state. Um, which is, you know, government shouldn't get involved in personal, private lives. Right. Uh, libertarians who think that we are, you know, we shouldn't have any kinds of regulation whatsoever. Um, you know, my problem with that is, if you look at the food industry as a, as a great example, there's virtually no regulation on the food industry. And as a result, uh, nor is there a regulation on advertising these very poor quality foods mm-hmm. to vulnerable populations like children, for example. Um, and we can see what that's done. I mean, one in three children are now obese. One in four five-year-olds are obese. I mean, that's a very young age. And that doesn't bode well for life expectancy. Mm-hmm. So, um, in fact, in 2006, the USDA put out a report that said, if we don't stem the tide of childhood obesity now, many children won't outlive their parents. So, you know, parents will be watching their children die from diet-related disease. And that came from the USDA. Mm-hmm. So um, when you have all these unregulated forces like that, especially with the foods, then we have a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. So I think that that, you know, the answer 
is really regulating more and creating programs like what I've suggested. It's amazing what the food companies get away with. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was at the store the other day and I noticed it. Do you know about this uh, line of cookies, Who Knew? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a brand of cookie or a line from some brand. I don't know who, who mm-hmm. makes it. But it's, the, the brand is Who Knew? And the idea is that these cookies are so good for you. <laughs> and they list, like, you know, it has this many grams of this and this right. many grams of that. And I don't know if they're, like, enriched in some way. Sure. They throw some vitamins oh, in there yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they're literally, like, sandwich cookies, like, like fake Oreo-type cookies right. called Who Knew? Mm-hmm. Because it's just, they're so good. It's like health food. It's, they're saying right. it's like... Uh, <clears throat> It'd be better than not eating the cookies. To eat the right. cookies would be better than not eating them. Right. That's exactly my point. They're basically allowed to say whatever they want because mm-hmm. the government, you know, they're sort of in bed with a lot of these big food corporations. Um, not sort of. They are. <laughs> and we and we mentioned, we, we did a, a previous um, Please Speak Freely episode about the sort of corporate insanity behind the school food. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lucy Commissar, uh, mm-hmm. who you might know is a mm-hmm. fellow journalist, and uh, wrote sort of an expose of some mm-hmm. of the um, the big corporate sort of maneuvering around that. Um, but you bring up, I, I noticed on your website, uh, you had written an article about the corporate sort of co-opting of um, professional food scientists and, yeah. and nutritionists and, and, and things right. like that too. And that, that was really interesting to me because it, it seems like Every industry sort of purchases their researchers and their sort mm-hmm. of um, the the so-called experts yeah. who will sort of back up whatever they oh, yeah. want to espouse. So, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's it's a little bit tangential, but mm-hmm. I think it's it's very related to the context of of this policy that you advocate. Yeah. So that was the um, the Academy for Nutrition and Dietetics, which is the largest. Uh, nutrition academy they certify all the rds registered dietitians in Mm -hmm. the country and an rd is who you will find in a doctor's office typically or in a hospital setting and they are considered the experts on food and nutrition Mm -hmm. so that academy is is largely funded by big food corporations and they have all of these um conventions where they invite uh coca-cola mcdonald's Unilever, General Mills, all the big, big players in the food industry, and they present, you know, science, I'm using air quotes, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, um, to tell people while, why their food is nutritious and good for people, even mm-hmm. though it's really not. And that is obviously a huge problem because these are, they're educating the experts to teach Americans about what's healthy and what's not healthy. So there's a tremendous amount of nutrition confusion in this country, which is why people are even more susceptible to these marketing schemes by the food industry because they don't really know what to believe because the experts themselves have been co-opted by these very same companies. So when you see claims on um, a cereal box or a cookie box that say uh, whole grain or low fat um, or full of fiber or gluten free. Yeah, or even gluten-free, right? That's a really trendy one. Now, um, these claims are, you know, dubious. And I would, I tell all my clients, whenever you see a health claim on a food, it means it's a bad food, most likely. Whenever you see a health claim, that means it's a bad one. Right. Okay. Because you'll never see a health claim on, like, an apple right. or a head of broccoli or, you know, on the bulk bins, you'll see, you know, raw nuts. They won't tell you how great those are for you. Right. If they've spent the time to do the research and market and come up with all these sayings and claims on the front of a package, mm-hmm. then it's not 
really a food that you should be eating very mm-hmm. much of, mm-hmm. if at all. So that the fact that the the experts, you're saying the experts have been co-opted, mm-hmm. but obviously not all of them, not right? Because you right. clearly don't consider yourself to be in that in that right. group. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, how does someone either working in education who cares about young people or a parent or family member who cares about their kids, how do they learn to differenti- differentiate from a passing trend that may be just a corporate-sponsored thing to sell more product yeah. and from you know, new research or new ideas or concepts about you know, we should eat at home more or we should um, cook our own food or we should be vegetarian or we should be mm-hmm. low-fat or we should be you know, yeah. Well, it's paleo, I mean, right? I mean, right. I mean, it's purposefully tricky on the part of the industry. So they make it so it looks like this is coming from an independent source or someone who really cares about your health or your family's health. Yeah. So you have to really have a critical eye when you're looking at advertisements, uh, even studies that are being reported in the press too. Because many times, if you look carefully at those studies, they've been funded by the very corporations that they're going to be benefit benefiting ultimately. Right. So. Um, you know, it's up to the consumer to be really critical about what they will believe and what they won't believe. You know, I mean, there's really no easy answer to that because yeah. it's been made to be per- like it's it's deceptive on purpose because they're trying to trick people and mm-hmm. they've largely succeeded in many ways. So I would just say, you know, always looking more deeply, um, especially when you know when you're looking at advertisements. Whenever there's an advertisement for a food. TV, radio, uh, you know, magazine, you can pretty much bet it's not a healthy food. The question that comes to mind is why are Americans so crazy about food? And the way I frame it that way is because I've, um, you know, I've spent a little bit of time in in Europe Mm -hmm. and the whole, the culture is just different around food. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, my wife was talking about it just the other day um, when I was talking to her about your op-ed, she was just talking about how, um, you know, in, in Austria, if there's a meeting or just any kind of gathering, you put out a big plate, big pile of cookies. Everybody just eats the cookies mm. and continues with the party or, or their conversation or whatever it is. Here, the conversation immediately becomes about the cookies and how many did you eat? And, oh, I don't know. Are they gluten-free or are they this or that? And, and oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or, I sh- you mm-hmm. know, if there are kids there, you know, did you already eat one? Did, what, well, what are you going to have later? If you do this now, you can't have mm-hmm. that later. And it yeah. seems like we're all constantly obsessing. Yeah. It may not, we may not all be obsessing over the same thing, but we're just obsessing about it. Yeah. That's true. And I think that's part of our dysfunctional relationship to food in this country. And, um, you know, we've been berated for so long about, you know, we should eat this, we shouldn't eat that coming from the government, you know, all these guidelines and recommendations that now we're finding out were largely incorrect. I mean, if you look at campaigns for low fat, which we've been told for since the 50s or 60s, actually, uh, don't eat foods high in fat, it's bad for your heart, um, you know, you're going to die if you eat them, saturated fats especially. But if you look at the science, the most recent science, and then people going back and evaluating what was the claim back then, it's actually not true at all. In fact, um, saturated fats, when they're coming from a good source, so like from grass-fed cows or grass-fed dairy, um, good quality eggs, good quality butter. These are health, healthy foods, traditional foods that we've been eating for millennia. But if you look at what, what they told us to eat instead, which were these products marketed with low fat written on the right, front, right. Um, these are really the products that have caused us to become really ill and, and become um, have issues with obesity in this country. So I think part of it, um, part of our obsession with it is that we've been 
sort of pushed around as a culture in terms of what we should be doing, what we should be eating. And there's a lot of hype around all of it. And it's, you know, the idea is like scaring people. And so, um, you know, people have been, you know, people become obsessed with things when that happens. And I think that's uh, a huge problem. But the thing is, is that it's really very simple. The, I, you know, what we should be eating, it's, it's totally simple. Couldn't be more simple. It's just eat like real food as it comes from nature. Right. If it grew in the ground, if it swam, if it flew, you know, these are all things that mean it was a real food. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's been so completely confused with the current industrial food model that people just really don't know what to do. And mm-hmm. that's why I think everyone's so like kind of uptight or neurotic around food. Mm-hmm. So th- this, uh, this op-ed in the, in the times you, you laid forth, uh, as we said, a pretty radical notion mm-hmm. of, of wages for housework originally, and, and as you put it, as paying people to cook at home. Um, do you have other uh, sort of policy dreams that you think would, uh, would have a big impact? Well, I like the other idea of having health days. You know, we have sick days at work and we have um, vacation time, but we don't. I think we should really incentivize health, too, because it's important to employers. It's important to productivity, too, to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And um, as you said earlier, people are working so much that their health often gets sidelined. And then, you know, you don't take time until you're really sick. So, um what about something like that where we had people could take time off just to do things that were good for them? And mm-hmm. that could be things like cooking and shopping and, you know, spending time with your children, and, mm-hmm. um, having a kitchen garden or, you know, community garden. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's one idea, but you know, beyond that, <laughs> working them out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a couple of times as you were talking about taking care of children and cooking for children mm-hmm. and what parents need, it occurred to me that, that people who don't have children and, and may choose not to have children mm-hmm. might feel slighted by this focus. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if there's a benefit for cooking at home for, for, for parents of young children, yeah. uh, you know, should there be an equivalent benefit for, for those who uh, are childless, whether they choose to be or, yeah. or not? Um, did, did you think about that, yeah. that angle? Yeah, I absolutely did. And I talked with several people who I know that don't want to have children. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that uh, it's a really valid point. And and it's something that I think would need to be worked out, too. Because I think if you're... if What I'm saying is that we should value the work done in cooking. Because it's crucially important to health and our culture at large. So it should be valued in people also who don't have children. Um, But in thinking about this article and making it... Uh, you know, I, I wanted it really to resonate. And I think people really with children um, understand, you know, that how hard it is to, to work full time and cook and take care of them. So maybe we could start with a program that benefited people who have children. And then gradually it could be, well, if, you know, it could be for people who also don't have children. I just, you know, I don't know. It just yeah. seems like we have to start somewhere and, um, this could be one place to start. Yeah. Have you had any interest from policymakers or, or people involved in politics of actually pursuing this in, in some kind of way? No. Um, I have, um, I did get one email from someone in city government, not in New York City, but saying that they thought that it was a really fantastic proposal and I should try to get a New York legislator, you know, involved or on board with something mm. resembling this. Mm-hmm. So, 
that was encouraging to know that um, someone who is involved in government um, thought it was a pragmatic and uh, reasonable proposal. Yeah. Um, but now I haven't. You know, I think it would have to start um, like on the city level too to try to mm-hmm. to try to see if it would work. And I think. You know, Bloomberg has actually been fairly involved in the proposed soda ban and the posting of calorie counts on menus. Right. Um, and he's done a lot of public service annou- announcements, like in the subway, about um, sugar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe maybe he'd be interested. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Bloomberg, if you're listening, <laughs> you can find Kristen's contact information on our website. <laughs> and uh, Kristen, I, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be on Please Speak Freely. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Mm-hmm.